This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. My name is Dr. Marshawn Hyman, and I'm the co-founder and principal consultant of True Change Alliance, a diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting firm. Today, I'm excited to introduce this particular episode to recognize Black History Month. The overarching purpose of Black History Month is to acknowledge and honor the contributions of Black Americans. As you listen to this episode, I ask that you make room for a different perspective and hold space for new understandings. Additionally, I invite you to explore Paradigm Shift, where we define Black history not as the history of Black people, but as American history told through the lens of Black people. This notion suggests that Black history is not an other or something that we pause to engage in for the month of February, but a way to sharpen our understanding of the American experience. Outside of listening to this episode, I encourage you to actively celebrate Black History Month. To do so, you should learn, engage, and act. Learn about the history of Black people in America. Engage with those outside your circle and support events in your area. And act by supporting Black businesses and donating to organizations working to advance racial justice in this country. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Emmy Birch, and you just heard from one of my dear friends, Dr. Marshawn Hyman. Dr. Hyman is a wonderful educator and human, and I'm sure at some point I'll have him as a guest on the show, but he has helped us set the stage today for a very special episode. That's right, it is February, and in February we get the opportunity to pause and celebrate Black History Month. So this episode features a wonderful black man, Mr. Arion Harley Emerson. And Mr. Harley Emerson is a musician. He's a musician friend of mine. And to be totally transparent, I interviewed him on my music education podcast, Music Ed Matters. And in the conversation, I realized so much of what he's saying needs to be illuminated in the world. In this conversation with Mr. Harley Emerson, who is a composer, a conductor, an equity coach, a nonprofit strategist, all sorts of things, he's really committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. He gives you all of these tools for how to not just define and understand the history behind ADEIBR practices, but how to use it as a tool, as individuals. But the coolest thing that Mr. Harley Emerson says is the power of joy in all things. In fact, speaking of some fabulous quotes that you're going to hear today, Mr. Harley Emerson says the lens of equality, it's a business imperative. He talks about how business practices can be applied to everyday practices. He also, quote, is a champion for the wellness of humans. And then my favorite, his definition of leadership. He says, leadership is commitment in action. So I am honored to bring you this conversation. You will hear it a little bit more from a musical music education perspective. My main job in life is as a professor of music and music education at a small college in South Carolina. And so I record a lot of my podcast episodes with my future music teachers in mind. But like I said, talking to Mr. Harley Emerson in this conversation, I realized 
you illuminate listeners, you need to hear what he's saying because it is absolutely powerful. As he says, equity sings. So I can't wait to hear what you think of this conversation. As always, it is an honor for the Illuminate team to bring you these episodes every week. Remember, you can support us with as little as a couple dollars a month over on patreon.com slash the Illuminate pod. That helps us keep this platform up and running as there are costs associated with streaming and saving the episodes and all that jazz. But it also gives us the awareness that you support what we're doing. Without further ado, that's enough announcements. I present to you this special episode honoring and celebrating Black History Month with Mr. Ariane Harley Emerson. Today, we're talking to Mr. Arian Harley Emerson. Hello, my friend. Hi, how are you? I'm so excited to speak with you today. How's Delaware? Delaware is great. Delaware is great, yes. So um, I technically live over the line. I've moved to the dark side in Pennsylvania when I got married. Uh, but pretty much my entire life and my social circles and professional circles, everything is pretty much in Delaware. So I still claim to be a Delawarean. And Delaware is as fabulous as it has always been. It is a beautiful state. I'm so excited that we get to have these conversations thanks to Zoom. Will you tell us tell us your story? How did you get into music? What path led you to Delaware? Yeah. How did you become the director of operations and music? Just tell us everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's I, I don't have one of those uh, straight line trajectory stories. Like who does these days, right? Um, so I grew up as a kid, I was singing all the time. Um, there are like little videos and pictures of me conducting in my crib. So obviously I was born to be a conductor. Do you have these? Can we see these? Oh yeah, I will follow up. I will follow up with some with some things and folks can take a look at them. My mom has them, I have them to go uh, dig some stuff up. But I was just always like a musical kid. We went to church from what I like to say, Sunday to Sunday, meaning uh, we were there every day. It was one of those like really intense kind of church programs where it was like all day Sunday. Then there was like youth group on Monday, Bible study on Tuesday, midweek Wednesday service, Thursday choir rehearsal, Friday youth night, Saturday clean up the church day and back to Sunday. You know, it was, that was my experience. And then of course, you know, the black church music is really um, a big part of that. Um, and, you know, the praise and worship chunk was always as long, actually longer than the sermon, right? You know, it's like its own kind of piece. And so that was really my first um, experience musicing. And um, for a long time, I kind of discounted that as like, oh, that's not really like a, you know, musical experience. But I'm like, no, that was like really formative uh, to who I am and was great learning. And, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling because, you know, we would call that technically informal learning that, you know, we have these formal, this, these terms, formal and informal learning. And I'm like, I think that's kind of diminutive, you know, um, of those, of those uh, learning experiences. But anyway, that's what I, where I started. And then I guess uh, my formal, if we're using those terms, uh, mm. learning came uh, through my elementary school. I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. And my entry, my elementary school teacher, Mr. McCoy, shout out to him. He was the best. And he was like, man, you, you're like really, really like, you know, a talented singer. And like, even though you're only in second grade, like we would love to have you sing with the four and five choir. And I was like, what? That's amazing. Amazing. And I did that. And he was um, running all these fun music programs. I remember things on like very early music software. Like this was like a long time ago before, like, you know, Finale and Sabela. Like it was like something that he was using. And I remember him being really into Orf and he was just, 
the best music teacher. And one day he sent me home with a letter. Um, and uh, he was like, take it home to your mom. I was in the free mom. I was like, okay, whatever. You know, I sent it to, um, I took it home to my mom. It was a letter. Um, it was a flyer to audition for the Peabody Children's Course in Baltimore, um, still conducted by Doreen Falby. And he had written a handwritten note on the back of it, which um, I still have, um, which was just like, you know, Ariane is like really talented. Uh, I think he should really consider auditioning for this. I would personally like to offer preparing him for this audition. Blah, 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 blah. Please give me a call. Let's chat. I'll keep following up with you. And I was like, ah, I don't know. And he kept following up with my mom. And um, my mom and he had some conversations. And I started getting ready for the audition. And then I joined the Peabody's Children's Course. And that was that. And at age seven, you know, I got involved. And I was involved with that all the way through my senior year of high school because um I even did interning there as well um, in college and in high school. Um, so it was really um, formative for me. And uh, I just, I remember just the first rehearsal hearing um, one of the advanced groups singing um, the Hans Leo Hostler Cantate Domino. And I had just never heard music like that before. And there's that like polyphonic section in the middle. And I was just like, what? I, I just had never heard anything like it. And I just was enamored. I could not believe that this was something I had never heard before. It was like, never, like I had never been able to see or taste or touch. It was like another sense of mine was opened on that day. And it was just amazing. And then, you know, I went off to college. Um, I graduated from Goucher College. I actually was like burnt out from music and I was like, oh, I'm not gonna do music. I'm gonna be a creative writing major and all this <laughs> stuff like that. And then there was like a music scholarship and I was like, oh, I'll apply. And it was like, you have to be at least a major. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm at least a minor. And I was like, okay, I'll be at least a minor. And then I was like, no, actually I'm gonna do this thing. And yes. I was a double major in music composition and then performance and then I was um you know at an ACDA performance I heard the University of Delaware Chorale perform and I was like that's where I'm going uh, for grad school and I um you know auditioned you know at a lot of places and I just was like but I really want to go to go to Delaware because I've never stepped foot in Delaware and that choir from Delaware was really great um, and so I went there for grad school. Um, so I did my first master's in choral conducting. Then I came back um, and I did one in voice. All at the same time, I was teaching um, in the school district of Philadelphia, which is wild <laughs> and crazy. Yes. So um, I loved that. It was an amazing experience. And then um, from the school district of Philadelphia, I was, I was recruited to the choir school. So I didn't really seek it out. It, um, it found me. Uh, there was a teacher who was uh, doing a practicum experience and for some reason or other um, needed to come with me because of some changes and placements and things like that um, at the University of Delaware. And so she was coming to me. Uh, with me to school in Philadelphia. And she was like, oh, you know, I'm like a section leader at this thing. And I mentor at this thing called the choir school. It's really cool. You should hear about it. You should come check it out. And I was like, oh, I will. And I never did because I was just too busy. And then um, uh, she was uh, like, oh, there's an opening. They're hiring someone. And I, they were like, oh, 
oh, you would be great. And I was like, oh, no, like, you know, absolutely not. Like, they had an amazing director, and they were all not only great choral conductors, but, like, virtuoso um, organists. Like, the uh, director performing was from New Zealand and was, like, this, like, just brilliant organist and, like, these just great, like, really just really accomplished sacred music folks. And I was like, oh, you know, I don't know. That's not me. I don't have my doctorate. They're not going to want me. Like I'm totally woefully unqualified for this. And um, my friend, um, her name is actually Emily Amatuli. I hope she's listening. Um, and she was like, I'm going to uh, text you every hour on the hour until you apply for this job. And it was the last day. And I was on the organ bench playing for my church job and all that. Buzz, 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 buzz. And I was like, finally, you know, okay, I'll just throw in an application. And the application was an interview. Then it was an audition. Then it was a follow-up interview and audition. And the rest was history. And so now it's been almost a decade that I've been here at the choir school. And I love it. It is uh, extremely rewarding. Um, we have an intergenerational choir. Um, we serve predominantly Black and Brown students. So um, the choir uh, is um, about 60 folks, half students, half adults. Um, and so we um, I have like an intensive program for students, a lot of wraparound social services to make sure that they um, are really being fully served. Um, and not just in music, but in academic enrichment, um, uh, with life skills, food, nutrition, things like that. We do a lot of that with our, our families have a meal with us every day. They, um, uh, we do a lot of advising, college prep. Um, so it's, it's a really intensive program and they're with us for a long time. Like, so many of them are with us for five or six or longer. We have people who are with us for eight uh, years, 10 years, seven all the way through graduating. Um, so it's really intensive. And then there are adults who mentor the kids and they will sing alongside with them, help with Spanish, French, math at the same time. And so it's a really unique community. Um, and there are just very few communities like this in the country. And so I just feel uh, fortunate and lucky and humbled every day to kind of do uh, this job. Do you, okay, I have so, this is an amazing story. Like, thank you for sharing your story. <laughs> Happy to, thank you. This is beautiful. Okay, first follow-up question. Yeah. Are you now utilizing your quote, what we're calling informal training? Are you seeing that change who you are as an educator? How is that now infiltrated now that you've had the formal training? How do you see that informal training playing? Yeah, um, I think I'm extremely aware of it. Um, I'm, I do a lot of encouraging. I like, I encourage a lot of our kids. The majority of our kids are black and from black communities and are really involved with their churches. So I am definitely drawing upon that. Um, I think it is a great opportunity for, um, I, I don't think it should be thought of as formal or informal. It's more like familiar and unfamiliar starting places. And so I like to think of it as um cultural scaffolding. So we know what scaffolding is when we are teaching, right? It's like, okay, like if we have a complex equation in math, we're not going to just start at the end. We're going to like, okay, here's addition, here's attraction. And we add these blocks until we're able to do this full thing. That's scaffolding. We break it down and we chunk it. Um, and cultural scaffolding is when we start from a familiar place that someone knows culturally. So um, let's say I'm teaching, uh, we do like a Bach cantata every year. It's really important to who we are. Um, and uh, we're, we, I 
I uh, choose intentionally a lot of the Cantus Firmus cantatas where um, the trebles are kind of just floating on the crowd tune over the top, which allows our young singers to, to sing back. And then our older kids and adults can do the really crazy polyphony and the alto tenor and bass parts, right? And I can have everyone singing together. Um, but I need these nice floaty head tones, that kind of classic children's choir hootie tone that we all love. But how do I get there, particularly from uh, students who might not have ever heard something like this before, maybe didn't have training like that, might not have music at all in their school. So where I would start is like singing something like Kurt Franklin's Revolution, which was this great tune. It's like, do you want a revolution? Whoop, whoop, right? And then when we do the whoop, whoop, we're getting into head voice, right? And so, and then I just start um, working that head voice there and then elongating durations and then we're ready to do a cantus firmus. So that's an example of cultural scaffolding. And so trying to start from one place and taking it from somewhere else. Um, the other thing that I've learned is to really focus on rhythm. So um, uh, one thing about um, a lot of traditions that are not Western is that there's um, a stronger emphasis on rhythm. And so we start a lot of times with rhythm, um, with rhythm syllables, with experiential kinesthetic feeling of rhythm. Um, and that's a big thing um, for us. And a lot of times I'll just drop a beat over something and we'll, you know, line it up, take that beat away. And then here we go. We've got this beautiful cantata. And so that's one way that I absolutely um, scaffold, use that culturally scaffolding approach. And it's something that is important to me because as a child, I felt like I was like, uh, like I had like multiple personality disorder, right? Like, like I didn't know who I was. I had these two different parts of myself that could not be unified and could not be reconciled. So I was at church and there was a way to sing at church. And then when I was in the children's course, there was a way to sing at the children's course. Both are wonderful and both are great, but I didn't have the vocabulary to talk about it and to talk about those differences. So when I uh, was growing up and, you know, people would come over and I was like, oh, play the piano, sing a song, do the thing. You know, you perform all the time and people come over. Um, and uh, sometimes I would do like songs from church, but I would sing them in a different style. And we didn't really have a, a way to like talk about that. So we would say, oh, sing it Peabody style. And that was the way to say using head voice, using this, because we didn't know how to describe this thing. And that was what we called it, um, you know, for until I was in college, it was just like sing it Peabody style. Like that's how they do it at Peabody. Like that's, that's wow. how it's done. And so um, it was fine and great and wonderful. But now I want my kids to be able to identify like, no, we're using chest voice. We're using middle voice. We're using mixed voice. We're using head voice. This is modal voice. What, what do these things mean? And how do I use these in different contexts? And I always like to tell my like students, they know there is no pitch that we sing that is 100% absent of TA action of chest voice, right? Even if we take it all the way up, you know, it's just different amounts of it. And same, you know, I, and so it's important. It's all great and it's important and, and our kids are able to, to talk about that and, and to kind of navigate those Passaggi areas. And I have them map out like, where do I change from head to chest, um, you know, in their scores and, and we kind of plan it and then we'll try it at different places. Um, and it really helps them to retain 
who they are as individuals to retain their culture. Um, you know, I believe that chest voice is wonderful and great and rich and we should use it. And I think that head voice is wonderful and great and rich and we should use it. Uh, and so um, making sure that they have those experiences that are just really fully integrated into what we offer is a big part of what we do. This is beautiful, using this idea of cultural scaffolding from Kurt Franklin to just the Peabody sound and how you're empowering your students with not just incredible vocal technique, but to retain individuality and to have the vocabulary to talk about it. What a cool concept. Yeah. All right. I think this is a great segue into telling us about your TED Talk. Yes. You also turned it into a chapter in a GIA book, but it's called, and I quote, the gang mentality of choirs, how choirs have the capacity to change lives. Can you tell us a little bit about this and kind of relate it to our yeah. conversation? So I absolutely love this. And um, this is something that um, I feel like I should, you know, pull back out again, because I think that a lot of our choral community was not really yes. ready for it. Um, back in 2000, I think 15 was when I was really um, beginning this thought and wanting to re-envision what we, what, what the construct of choir can and should look like. Um, but the principle is this, you know, uh, I grew up in the city and, um, you know, I observed a lot and um, I knew people who were involved in gangs and all of that. And I've always known um, intrinsically why people, um, you know, join gangs it's because they want to be a part of something. It's because they need protection, all those sorts of things. And then when I was older, um, you know, um, I was in a class, a psychology class, and we were learning about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I was like, this is why people join gangs. This is exactly why people join gangs, because it offers all of these essential needs that we need to really be fully what we call self-actualized people. So, um, and maybe um, we can get um, a pyramid to show folks or something mm -hmm. in, in the liner notes. Yeah, I'll link it in the notes. At the, at the bottom of the pyramid, we have like uh, physiological needs. So things that our bodies need, air, shelter, water, those kinds of things. Then we have this next need for safety and security. It's exactly what it sounds like. Then we have social needs for friendship, uh, relationships, family, those sorts of things. And there's esteem. So, and that's self-esteem, right? We're talking about confidence. How do we view ourselves? How do we view achievement? And then we take that all the way up to um, the pinnacle, which is like self-actualization, where we can really truly be creative, problem solving, where there's authenticity to our being and spontaneity, right? And so um, I was like, oh yeah, that's exactly why people join gangs. And that's actually the same reason why people join choirs, right? Because we can, and we do offer all of those, except we're not necessarily as intentional as we should be. So choirs can actually learn a lot from the construct of gangs, right? And how they retain people and how they make people um, feel this sense of security. Of course, we don't want any of the other, you know, parts of gangs that are not constructive, but there is something there to learn, right? There is something there to learn about caring for people. There is something to learn about bringing individuals into one family. Um, and I think that is really important. And then in choir, I, you know, started thinking, oh yeah, that's what we can and should be doing with choir. You know, um, I think that every choir is a, an opportunity to, um, 
really champion the wellness of humans, right? That's what, I mean, we, we teach music, we conduct music, but really we're trying to care for, tend um, for, uh, you know, humanity. That's what we're doing. And music is how we, how we do that. And so, um, you know, I believe, and it is our belief here at the choir school, we've got to take care of those physical needs. So we're going to make sure people have clothes. We make sure like what, you know, we intervene a lot with uh, many of our families that might have financial distress, um, who like, how am I going to keep the lights on? You need food? Great. We're going to line you up with some uh, programs. We have a new a wellness program, a nutrition program, all those things. Safety and security. We make sure our space is safe. Um, we make sure it's psychologically safe. We make sure, of course, it's physically safe, and that is very clear. Uh, we take care of a lot of social needs. We have a lot of time um, for um, connecting that is not music making, right? And sometimes I think that's the biggest mistake. Even if it's only five minutes in a rehearsal, we should take some time to build community with one another. Um, and I know it's hard because we're always trying to prepare, but I think it pays dividends. But we, we pay attention to that. We have mentoring, we have group mentoring, we have one-on-one -on -one mentoring. That's where that intergenerational part is really important to our model. Um, having you know students age seven all the way up to adults at age 77, you know, um, it's um, really important to fulfill those social needs. And then for esteem, we're building people up, we are making sure they feel confident. We are, we have like what we call standards um, and they can earn standards over the course of the year, building up our community, making them feel great, making sure they feel successful. And then self-actualization. Who are you as an artist? What do you prefer? What pieces would you like to see and why? Where, you know, a lot of democratic processes of like, where, where is the zenith of this phrase? Where is the pinnacle of this? How might we do this? Can you sing that phrase for me? Ooh, you see what, you know, uh, Tanisha sang. Can we all sing that like Tanisha? Great, right? That's beginning the process of self-actualization. And that's wonderful. Um, and then we're really nurturing the artist citizen, um, which is what we're really looking to do. And um, I, th I think it's important. I think it's just absolutely important. And I think ultimately that's how we build, it's one of the ways that we build an emancipatory choral education. And I think that's really, really important. And, um, and I use that word intentionally. So scholar Geneva Gay says that, you know, um, uh, a choral education should be multidimensional. It should be uh, transformative. And she has these great list of just like powerful adjectives. And she ends with saying that an education should ultimately be emancipatory. And I think that is just so powerful and it reverberates um it is like fire shut up in my bones that's what we would say whenever i hear that it just gets me so excited because that's the opportunity that we have that's the responsibility that we have and so i i just think it's great how do we make our choral education emancipatory 
Oh, that's a beautiful quote in and of itself. I'll make sure I write that down. You've given us some great examples of how you're tossing in opportunities for democratic education and empowering that self-actualization. What are some of the ways that you build that connectivity? You said it just takes like five minutes, but what are some of those examples as well, since that's a really big part of this? Right. So we we have a lot more than five minutes just because of the way that our program is um, designed. So for us, there is you know, we have mentors um, and that there's a, an actual thing, Big Brother, Big Sisters kind of programs uh, within um, our choir, which is super helpful. Uh, we have um, activities for the kids to get to know one another, for the adults to get to know each other. Um, I incorporate games, um, like even if we're doing something that you might think is elementary, like uh, pass the beat around the room or forbidden pattern. I'm going to pull everybody into that, whether you're seven or whether you're 77, we're all going to do it together. Um, you know, when we're touring together, we build those common experiences with folks. So it's, th- those are the kind of interactions that we like to do. Special dinners out, I'm going to a museum, um, you know, uh, Lots of just a concert, you know, together, going to things together. It's just great, you know, playing board games, checkers together. Um, during non-COVID times, we have these community dinners together. Um, so, you know, it's just stuff like that that really builds into um, the community, which ultimately satisfy those really critical social needs. It's the intentionality of it all. Yes. You're doing things intentionally. You're picking Cantus Firmus Cantatas intentionally. Correct. Setting them up and everything you've talked about is so intentional and so thoughtful from such a place. Like you said, we have the responsibility Mm -hmm. to create this emancipation culture, which is beautifully said. Mm -hmm. It also lends me to ask the question. Where did your website name come from? Your website is Equity Sings, and I feel like it's going to come out of this somewhere. But where did that come from? You know, uh, so I've been doing this work for um, for a while. Um, by this work, I mean ADEI, Access, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion work for, for a long time. And a few years back, I was just kind of like, oh, Aaron, like consulting for a long time. And... Um, Finally, I was, um, you know, thinking, well, what, I, this just, I, it needs a name. Um, and I was thinking, you know, uh, as this practice continues to grow, you know, having some, you know, other people assist me in it, like it can't be my name, right? You know, it needs to be bigger than that. And I was just like, well, what is important? And I was helping mostly at that time co-organizations. Um, and I was like, well, what is important about this work? And I was like, I don't know, like, you know, Equity is not something that is a responsibility. It's a privilege and a joy, like singing. Equity sings. Mm. And that's how it came to be. Equity is a privilege and a joy. Wow. What a, can you unpack that just a little further? Yeah. So I think it's a privilege for us to do this work um, because it's, not everyone. I, I take it like, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we're, we're doing this equity work. It should have been done a long time ago. Absolutely. Um, but I also realized, particularly with the movement in the United States and a lot of like, you know, Western countries, it is still a privilege 
that we have these tools and resources to be able to move forward this conversation. You know, there are so many places in the world that are so um, authoritarian, um, that have such dire situations that um, these conversations cannot even be held openly. And then I think it's a joy because what we forget oftentimes is we get out of it that which we put in. Mm -hmm. And if we go about doing this work joyfully, we will reap joy um, out of it. And seeing someone else's success is joyful. Mm -hmm. Seeing someone else's access is joyful. And anyone who I've ever spoken with who is truly engaged in this work for the right reasons, it's been a great experience. It's not always easy. It's not always comfortable, but it's always a joy. It's always rewarding. It's just the best. And so I I think that um, we sometimes forget that. And um, one thing I love about um, this one piece, It Takes a Village by Joan Shimko. Um, It's like, you know, it sets the problem. It takes a whole village to raise a child. Um, And then, uh, which is this West African proverb. And then she continues it. We all, everyone must share the burden. We all, everyone will share the joy. Mm. And I say that all the time. And I say that to a lot of our supporters and volunteers. Um, and, and that's community building. Mm. That's community building, right? We all will share the word, burden and we all will share the joy. How full circle. And what a great example. I'm now thinking, hey, 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 It's such a great piece. Yeah. You mentioned ADEI, but you also talk a lot about diversity, equity, inclusion, and I love this choice of word, belonging, D-E-I-B. Can you kind of explain the difference ADEI versus D-E-I-B? How did you come about that acronym? So I like a lot of these are beginning to grow and develop and evolve. And um, before we were talking about ADEI, it was really DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. And in before that, let's let's like take this from the top, right? So mm-hmm. we we used to have like um, outside of Jim Crow came civil rights movement, and we were looking for equality, right? Then that movement really slowed down a bit with equality, um, you know, in the '60s and into the early '70s, and then we moved into this era. Um, in the 80s, that was tolerance. So you might remember tolerance. I remember when I was in school, we were like, oh, let's talk about tolerance. We should be tolerant. And now that feels like really cringeworthy hearing it like, oh yeah, you should tolerate someone else who's in your space and in your world. It just doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we kind of moved later into the 90s and the early kind of 2000s into diversity and then kind of inclusion was there. And then we really evolved into DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so that's where things were for a while. And that was still a major step forward in our understanding of this work. Um, But when you have those things, you have belonging. Um, And ultimately people will not belong if they don't, if there's not diversity and they don't see themselves reflected, if there are not equitable equitable policies and practices, and to break that down, meaning that equitable policies and practices, meaning that we're giving everyone the 
resources that they need to have equal success. So equity and equality, two different things, but we are giving everyone the resources that they need, which might be different for each person so that they can have an equal outcome, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, inclusion, like how are we bringing in different thoughts, ideas, perspectives, cultural, cultural traditions, and all of that. And when that is present, we have this sense of belonging. Then um, in my practice, I've started using ADEI over the last couple of years. And um, I hope that everyone checks out in March, the March, April Coral Journal article, because I go into this um, pretty extensively. And I talk about why I have been in the diversity initiatives um, at the American Coral Directors Association, why we're now using ADEI. And we actually are using ADEIBR. Right, so, um, and I'll go through all of that, but it, we are continuing to expand our understanding of what is needed. And so um, just like we have LGB, we had like GBL at one time was gay, bi and lesbian. And then we went to like LGB and then we had LGBT, then we had LGBTQ, then we had LGBTQI, now we're at LGBTQIA plus, right? Yes. Um, and I love the plus because it's a great acknowledgement that there's still more for us to understand and to learn. Um, and similarly with um, this practice um, of like, you know, inclusion work, um, I believe that the ordering of things is truly A, D, E, I, B, R. Access, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and then the R's restorative practice. So I'll say that one more time. So that's access, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and then the R, restorative practice. So the reason why the A is first is because you cannot have any of the other things unless you have access, period. Mm -hmm. If you're, you can run the best program, you can be the most like woke people on the earth, but if you don't have this access, then the rest of it's for not. If people don't have access to your organization, then it will not be diverse. If you do not have access in your organization, then there's no need for equitable policies, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't need to appropriate a different amount of resources to have an equal outcome, right? Without access, you, there's no need to include differing ideas and perspectives and all of those uh, cultural traditions and, and the other things we're talking about. And without access, no one's going to feel like they belong. Right. And uh, that's really important. And so I think this is the correct order, access. You know, you provide access to your organization. Once you have access in your organization, you'll begin to see more diversity. Because you have that diversity, you need to make sure you have equitable policies. Even if you don't have that diversity, but you're like, I value diversity, then you should have equitable you know, practices. Um, and then inclusion. How am I seeking out different perspectives and ideas and cultures and cultural traditions to be in our space? Right. And then that leads to belonging. Right. Feeling like this is my place, feeling like there is space for me, feeling like there is space for this person, feeling like, you know, that this is a place where I am safe and comfortable and wanted and loved. Um, and so that's important. And then there's this R. 
And this R I've been really underscoring recently, restorative practice. So most of us know about restorative justice, or I've heard maybe a little bit about it, um, particularly school teachers, you know, you're like, oh yeah, we're gonna have a restorative circle. Like, you know, this kid did something to the other kid. And so we're all gonna get a circle and we're gonna talk about it. And that's like a restorative circle, you know? Um, but the idea of restorative justice is that, um, and the criminal justice system is where this kind of was used. Uh, and it, it basically is someone has, there's been some offense and that not only does that offense need to be acknowledged, but we need to repair what has mm -hmm. to happen before. It's not just about justice. Like you were right, you were wrong. Someone said you were wrong and you go off and you have a consequence, but it's like, we've actually re started repairing um, and healing. And that's where this comes from. And there are a lot of just really public examples recently of folks who have said, you know, I don't want that person after this kind of restorative practice has been used, this restorative justice has been used, you know, with, um, you know, the offender and maybe a victim's family coming together, having conversations and bringing about healing. And these are beautiful and wonderful stories. And this is starting to happen more frequently. Then this moved over to, well, how can we use this principle in schools and in our lives when, you know, like, Susie hit Jerry, how do we do it, right? And then that's kind of how we got to restorative justice. But I like to use restorative practice. And um, I was really doing a lot of research into where did this restorative stuff come from? And it really comes from, we find it in, uh, in continental Africa and a lot of cultural traditions in continental Africa. And we also find it in uh, indigenous cultures and a lot of Maori culture particularly have really complex systems of restorative, what they don't call justice, but really practice. And I love that idea of restorative practice because we don't have to have an offense for us to know and acknowledge that healing is needed, that there is inherent brokenness in our world that we seek to address, to acknowledge, to address, and to redress. Um, and that's what I love. So it's not just that we do this work, not just that we have more diverse repertoire. It's not just that we have a more uh, culturally responsive pedagogy. It's not just that we have a more culturally responsive practice, but how are we leaving things better than what we found it? And so Rick Biella from Texas Tech um, says that, and he has said that with many of his choirs and he worked with one of the, um, the ensembles that I was singing at um, during my graduate school days at Delaware. And he just would say this, and he said multiple times when he was visiting, the goal is to leave it better than you found it, meaning the world, right? We've got to leave this world better than what we found it. That is restorative practice. How do we, if we're reaching out to communities and we say we want to engage them and we want to bring them into the fold, how do we leave these communities more whole than where we we initially met them. So that I think is at the pinnacle. That's when we're really self-actualizing together, mm. together, right? And we're getting to the top of that pyramid together. And so I keep talking about that restorative practice. It's like, if we're gonna be doing, you know, this diverse repertoire and, and these sorts of things, what are, we, what are we doing with those communities that have, you know, been other or marginalized or excluded? Um, you know, great, we sang some pieces, great, we did some study, but how, how are we actually gonna leave these communities better in the end? And so that's something that I sit with um, often is how can we really have restorative practice? You've given us like a, 
a step-by-step what to do action-wise. You've laid out the research. You've talked about Maslow. You've given us the pyramid. You've talked about the gang mentality of choirs, but through all of it, we now have a step-by-step process with A-D-E-I-B-R on how we can sequentially look at our programs and what we're doing to reach that ultimate, the top of the pyramid, the R. That is so beautiful. I love your explanation. That's the best explanation that I have heard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wow, I'm sitting here taking notes like a crazy person, learning so much from you. Well, like, it's my pleasure to to share. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh my gosh, well, I don't wanna go yet because I have a few more questions if yeah, you don't mind. absolutely. So you were a thriving consultant, both to choirs in so many ways, but also to nonprofit organizations and you do all sorts of studies and strategic planning and board governments governance. Can you talk to us about that aspect of your job and how you see that impacting your choral world? Yes, I've learned so much Uh, (laughs) over the years. So I've now worked with, um, um, I'm about to engage with my 70th organization. Whoa, 70th. It's so crazy. Um, But, uh, but I've learned so much. So, you know, I really started out very choral specific and then other kind of music organizations um, started um, seeking out some, um, you know, guidance and help in in this area. And then um, you you guys know, um, uh, with my role at the choir school as the director of music and operations, that's just a fancy word for artistic and executive director. You do all the things. So I learned a lot about fundraising. I've learned a lot about, um, you know, capital campaigns, strategic planning. I've learned about all these things and I began to share, how do we do that with this lens of equity? And then that's why people began to engage with, you know, we're like, hey, Ariana, I'd really love to like, you know, engage equity things because it's like, this needs to be woven into what we're doing. And so I've been fortunate enough to um, lead a number of longitudinal studies with um, large organizations, you know, taking a look at their trends of um, inclusion and diversity and seeing how it's been growing. Um, I've helped people develop dashboards, tools to be able to track their progress. Um, I've worked for corporations uh, to help them, you know, with hiring practices, with ERGs as our employee resource groups. How do we create um, affinity groups? Maybe it might be the um, AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander ERG, to really talk about the unique um, you know, uh, experiences of folks from our AAPI community or our Black community or or millennial community or, 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 and, you know, designing those sorts of things and seeing what the impact is on retention, seeing what the impact is on innovation. And there are a lot of tools to be able to measure those sorts of things. Um, and it's so rewarding to see, uh, like, all of this graphed and plotted out because, what you begin to understand is that ADBER is not just a moral imperative, it's a business imperative. If we want to be sustainable nonprofits and businesses, and we want to grow our profits, and we want to be leading in innovation and creativity, well, we have to have a diversity of people and perspectives and ideas and cultural traditions, because that is necessary. That, that's the secret sauce. 
that's the secret sauce, right, um, of success um, is the, the diversity of perspective that we can have in our planning and our idea incubation. Um, and so um, I've loved doing that kind of work. Um, you know, I've also been doing a lot of policy kind of work, um, policy work with uh, like organizational policy. Um, also work with a lot of foundations who are looking at how they can more equitably distribute their assets. Um, so I love that. Um, uh, you know, doing advising. I, I did um, advising uh, with the Biden-Harris uh, transition team, uh, which was really cool. And with the National Endowment for the Arts and how uh, there's some new programs, which um, I hope people check out. Deadlines are approaching. Um, but it's been really a, a joy. Um, as I said, it's a work. It's a burden, but we all share the burden. We all share the joy, right? Um, right. But it's just been really rich, you know, and I just am grateful that people have entrusted me with their stories and vulnerabilities and their challenges and their successes. Um, it's it's um, certainly overwhelming and rewarding. So with 70 different businesses, and obviously there's going to be more in your future, for someone listening that's wanting to really get started using this lens of equity and employing what we've learned from ADEIBR, what would be the first steps? What advice would you give them to get started? My first step is I always tell people more and more education. So um, I actually have developed a framework and I'll share it with you, um, uh, which is called, it's called a levers of change uh, framework. And this is in businesses and things like that. But the first step is education. You've got to do whatever you can to educate yourself, seek out resources, do all of that work to um, really learn, right? Just jump into the deep end of the pool, learn, 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 learn before you start to do, right? Learn before doing. So what I always think the order of things is we start with learning. And then after we've done some learning, we go into a leading phase. And in that leading phase, we make a commitment that we're going to do this. And we really take leadership. That's what leadership really is. It's commitment in action. Um, and so that is the next phase. It's not something that we're broadcasting yet and, and doing all that, but we are making a commitment. We're writing it down. We're saying within our organizations, we're going to do one and two and three and four. How do we get there? And then you're like, I think this is what we, we have and this is what we don't have. And then you move into this next step called involving. And that's when you begin to involve others. A lot of people want to start the process by like, let me talk to all of my friends who are diverse. And uh, but no, that's third step. Third step, right? And in that involving step, that's when you talk to people who have been maybe othered or historically marginalized. Um, and you bring them into the fold and say, hey, I'm working on this. Am I on the right track? So whenever you would take, uh, you ask people's advice, you have to do something with it. One of the most harmful things we can do is ask for your advice and then not take any pieces of it, right? That's not good, that's not good, right? So not only do you wanna involve people, you wanna give them agency and you wanna act on that advice. Once you've done that, you're ready to communicate, ready to communicate to your community. Look, we're gonna be doing something that's differently. Here's why we're doing it. That's when you're coming out with statements, right? Everyone likes to start with a statement, but no, that's like halfway through this cycle. And then um, after you communicate what you wanna do, you start measuring. 
you want to use both quantitative and qualitative techniques to measure. So how many, um, what's the depth, what's the experience, surveying, um, looking at engagement. Engagement might be how many hours people are participating. It's not just about how many people, but the the depth of which people are um, engaging um, with your organization, your course, your business, et cetera. And then um, you go into the sustaining phase where you're like, how do we do? Do I need to make some course adjustments? You acknowledge, I keep using that word acknowledge. Um, if there are shortcomings, right? You might be like, okay, we have to uh, make these course corrections. And then with those course corrections, that's gonna require more education. And that's where you began the cycle. And then you go right back through it again. So I can give you a visualization of this cycle. Yes, I would um, love But to it's really, really important, right? It's mm -hmm. so important, uh, this cycle, um, the slivers of change. Um, and this is how we get leverage and how we can move through efficiently, effectively, and with respect with our peers. Um, and so that's how I would kind of encourage people to think about their initiatives as they are planning them. And where do I begin? Education. Education. Oh, which is perfect. That podcasting is educating. I'm so Great. thankful that you had time for this. I'm so I have just, happy. I've taken a whole steno pad of notes. <laughs> I'm so glad that we did this. This is wonderful. Okay, before I let you go, we always have the guest share the one thing that really matters, like the nugget you want them to walk away with. So what do you want the listener to really remember from this? Wow. One nugget, I guess I would say, is nobody's perfect. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to slip up. We are all, we all, show off, we all fall, uh, we fall short, right? We all do. And that's okay. What really happens, what matters is that we're getting back up and that we're committed to the work. More than anything, people can see if you are committed to the work. So consistently ask yourself, how can I show that I'm committed to this work in action? How can I show that? And I think that's the most important thing is like a lot of the stuff, you might not start there. You might do not do things, um, um, you know, in the right order or sequence, but people will know if you are genuine about this. People will know if you're doing this for the right reasons and that you have a personal commitment. You cannot, the big nugget I would say is that commitment has to be a personal commitment. It cannot be an organizational commitment until all of those individuals have a personal commitment. Otherwise, it's just checking boxes, right? So how do we get to that place where everyone has a personal commitment? And then we'll be satisfied. I love it. Belonging and restorative practice. Mm -hmm. Finding that. Oh, this is so good. I have a million ideas for titles, but this has been such a lovely conversation. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's been great. Leadership is commitment in action. We have so many powerful keys to make change, but it starts with accessibility. It's okay. Keep trying. As you heard him say, get up and just keep going. I really want to hear what you got from this episode. I can't thank 
Ariana Neff for being on the show and for his willingness to let me rebrand the whole episode for my music education focus to have it ready for you, our Illuminate podcast listeners. I really want to know what you think. Remember, like and review us on wherever you listen to your podcast. It's how we get these conversations out into more people's ears. Again, if you want to join us in conversation, we do have our Patreon page at the Illuminate Pod. We would love to see you over there and join in conversation over there. But really, the whole point of this podcast to illuminate really cool stories happening across the world. So in case no one has told you today, you, my friend, you are incredible. Whatever you're doing today, however big or small, you're illuminating whatever it is that you need to be illuminating. And we hope this conversation has inspired you or fed your soul or whatever. And thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the Illuminate Podcast.